In past episodes, we've looked at nuclear war films such as The Day After, When the Wind Blows, The War Game, and the best of them all, Threads. But despite being a bookworm and having been a literary critic, I have never scrutinised nuclear war novels here. The reason why is simple. I don't think there are many good ones. Ah, but there is a great one. And we're going to look at it today. It's The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Now, this isn't going to be a bookish episode. We're not going to discuss the novel's merits. Instead, I'm going to look at the way the author portrays his post-apocalyptic society and ask if this was accurate, rooted in reality in any way. Of course, it's a novel and it doesn't have to be accurate. We're not fact-checking. But we'll use it as a jumping-off point to discuss the likely outcome of a nuclear war. This is The Atomic Hobo, and I'm Julie McDowell. Now, let's get the niggling question out of the way first. Some people say The Road is not a nuclear war novel. And yes, McCarthy doesn't ever make it clear what caused the apocalypse in his book. I read it as a nuclear war, but then I would, wouldn't I? But others argue the planet has been devastated by a massive meteor strike, or a monstrous volcanic eruption, or some environmental or climate disaster, and that's fine, because it hardly matters really. McCarthy doesn't tell us because that's not the point of the book. He wants us to look at society after the disaster, not quibble about what caused it. I choose to interpret it as a nuclear holocaust. So let's give a quick summary of the book for those who are not familiar with it, and then we'll jump right into analysing what I see as the nuclear horror, and we'll try and pin it to what I found in the archives about planning for nuclear war. Now, if you haven't read the book, don't worry about spoilers, because there isn't really a plot to the road. The book doesn't have a plot, it doesn't need one. It's about character and atmosphere and the immense imagery that he creates. It doesn't need a, ooh, what happens next element. That's for kids. It presents a father and a son in a ruined America and they are endlessly walking on a road trying to get south in the hope of surviving the coming winter. They are starving and they are filthy and they are traumatised. They have a bundle of blankets and some tinned food and they push their possessions before them in a battered old supermarket trolley. The father is almost demented in following his one task in this devastated world. His one purpose, his one reason for staying alive, and that's to protect his son. He has a gun with just two bullets. One will be used to fight off a cannibal attacker, 
the remaining bullet, the father forces himself to realise, will be used to kill his son to deliver him from any further such attacks. But can you do it, he asks himself again and again, when he wakes up in the dawn in the terrible grey light and he looks at his son who's still curled up in the blankets, sleeping by the embers of the fire. Can you do it? When the time comes, can you do it? Can you kill your own son? Now, as to what has caused this terrible disaster, we know that something has happened to kill off most of the plants, animals and people. There have been massive firestorms which have melted the roads and turned the forests into black sticks. The air is tinged with constant soot and ash and the sun can't struggle through the murk so the world is always limp and cold and grey. Survivors have formed into gangs and built themselves communes which are barricaded against outsiders and the weak have been turned into slaves. There is rape and cannibalism and suicide. So, is this what the world after a nuclear war, an all-out nuclear war, would look like? And yes, I think so. Let's begin with the scene where the father recalls the beginning of the disaster. It happens in the middle of the night, and he's awoken from his sleep by a sheer of light and a series of low concussions. Okay, perhaps a nuclear attack wouldn't announce itself with, quote, a sheer of light. It's more likely you'd see a flash. The use of the word sheer supports those who think this is a meteor strike, but let's not get bogged down in that. (laughs) We can argue with that on Twitter. But for now, let's just stick to what Cormac McCarthy gives us and whether this represents what we think a nuclear war would be. So our character, he's never given a name, the father, the man, is startled awake during the night by this sheer of light and a series of explosions. He jumps out of bed and puts the light on, but the electricity is already gone, and all the clocks have stopped. Now this sudden cut in power is one effect of a nuclear detonation known as the electromagnetic pulse, or EMP. When a nuclear bomb explodes, it throws out this pulse of energy, which can knock out electrical and electronic equipment. Indeed, that's how the nuclear attack in threads begins, with a single nuclear weapon detonated at high altitude, with the intent of disabling power in the enemy's country, and so hampering any retaliation. So even if you weren't directly crushed or vaporised or burned by the nuclear strike, you could still expect to have all your gadgets and machines and wires and power knocked out by the EMP. His next move is one recommended in most nuclear civil defence booklets, and that's start gathering clean water. He runs into the bathroom, puts the plug in the bath and starts running water. His pregnant wife stumbles out of bed confused and asks why he's running a bath at this time of night. I'm not, he says. Now that's one of the wonderful things about Cormac McCarthy he doesn't waste words he doesn't go on and on with reams of dreamy dialogue he doesn't wear you down with 
pages and pages of description. Everything is neat and precise and cut to the bone. I love that about him. And so he simply says to his wife, when she asks why running a bath, he says, I'm not. And that's it. And the scene ends there, I believe. And so we're left to work it out ourselves. What's happened outside? What was that light? What are those explosions? Why is he running a bath? Why are the clocks stopped? Why are the lights not working? So his first move is to run a bath. And as, as I say, that pops up a lot in civil defence booklets. My previous podcast about Ireland uh, refers to the country's nuclear civil defence advice. And the booklet they issued contained helpful drawings one of which is a cheery housewife filling her bath with water, just as our character in the road does. The water is tinted green in the Irish booklet, as is much of the rest of the booklet. We see a woman in a green dress filling her bath with green water, whilst a nice green glow fills the window. There's a picture of this on my Twitter feed if you want to see it, just... Search for my Twitter name, which is Julie A. McDowell, and the phrase Ireland and Green, and it pops up. Um, I've put up quite a few pictures from that booklet. It was um, absolutely brilliant. Protecting Ireland, or giving Ireland advice against nuclear war in lovely hues of gentle emerald green. Britain's own nuclear advice from the late 70s, early 80s, Protect and Survive, offers the same advice on gathering drinking water, suggesting you fill the sink and the bath with water and then cover them with boards or plastic sheeting so that the water can't be subsequently contaminated with fallout dust. There's no point in gathering all that water if you leave it open because goodness knows what's going to be coming down. Fallout dust or the roof itself. So fill every receptacle in the house with water. The biggest one, of course, is your bath and then cover it to keep that water as clean as you can. Now we turn to the difficult but horribly obvious topic of suicide. Quite a jump there, of course, from bath water to suicides, but this is what the book throws at us. This is what the reality of a nuclear attack would force us to confront. After a nuclear war, if things were indeed as awful as we assume... Many people, of course, would probably kill themselves, or at least consider it. And the road tackles that subject. In the British Parliament, the question of nuclear suicide was asked in 1983 by Lord Jenkins. He asked whether there was any substance in reports that they are, they being the the authorities, any substance in reports that they are stalking suicide pills for those terminally injured in a nuclear attack? The blunt answer was, none whatsoever. The MP Anne Cluid asked a similar question the following year, wanting to know whether suicide pills would be given to emergency workers to deal with, quote, the millions of untended dying. Again, the answer was a very blunt no. Lord Jenkins obviously wouldn't let the subject go. He asked again in 1985, Would the noble lord not recognise that the best service that local authorities could perform to their ratepayers would be the accumulation of suicide pills, so that in the event of a nuclear attack of the size envisaged by the Minister's Department, the remainder of the population left behind would be enabled 
to depart this life more peacefully than would otherwise be the case? Would this therefore not constitute a proper form of planning? His question was dismissed as macabre, and so the government made clear there would be no state-supported suicide after a nuclear war. And I do believe them. Having looked in detail at the NHS plans for nuclear war, we see that they were having a hard time stockpiling the basics, let alone keeping a massive supply of so-called suicide pills. So that's what the parliamentarians had to say on the matter of nuclear suicide in Britain. But what about the ordinary people out in the communities? The Times reported in December 1983, just two days before Christmas, that villagers in Congersbury, Somerset, had held a public meeting and decided by a vote of 62 to 16 to support their local GP, Dr Lawson, if he chose to issue lethal doses of morphine to them after nuclear war. The paper reports that Dr Lawson said he had called the meeting because some of his patients would stab, shoot or strangle their children rather than allow them to suffer the effects of radiation after a nuclear conflict. Over in America, it wasn't West Country villagers who were debating nuclear suicide, but students. In October 1984, students at Brown University voted to ask the University Health Service to stock suicide pills in case of nuclear war. Predictably, the university refused and pointed out that they feared being seen to endorse suicide, which was already a big cause of death amongst young people. But the students, in return, said their vote had been symbolic and was meant to educate people about the nuclear threat and to prompt them to associate nuclear war with suicide, instead of associating it with words such as survival and recovery, as the government might prefer. Cornell, Colorado and Washington universities held similar votes and campaigns. Incredibly, it was reported in the New York Times in 1986 that a magazine called The Gun Runner, for gun enthusiasts, was selling cyanide pills to its readers in case of nuclear war. The editor told the paper, Cyanide is extremely easy to get. Another prominent theme in The Road is anarchy. The world after this disaster, this apocalypse, this what I see as a nuclear holocaust, is now utterly lawless. And the father lives in constant, watchful terror. His gun is always at his hip in case anyone should try to attack and grab his son. And yes, the book makes clear that people want to grab him and his son so they can either eat them or enslave them. Neither option is palatable, so they are always on the lookout. Because this is a society which has utterly broken down. There are no laws anymore, and certainly no police to enforce order. And any hope of survivors clinging to the old rules of society are dashed, because the survivors have become rough, furious, insane, or utterly dead inside, and they don't care what happens to their fellow man. You are no longer a member of society to them, you're no longer a fellow human being, 
you're just the prospect of a meal or of sex or as a member of slave labour. The only way to have any prospect of safety in this society is to be armed or to join one of the brutal gangs who now roam the country. There is strength in numbers in this society and also perhaps the prospect of losing your humanity, your concerns and your conscience and just following the crowd, adopting their brutal behaviour. Certainly the authorities in Britain knew that when they were drawing up plans for the care of the homeless after a nuclear war. They were very afraid of large groups of homeless people who had suffered trauma, injury, distress. They feared these people who were now perhaps mentally ill, mentally damaged in some way, gathering together in groups and perhaps encouraging one another into some kind of anarchy or riot. And so in 1964, the Ministry of Housing and Local Government produced guidance on care of the homeless after nuclear war, and they had a specific section in the booklet called Dangers of Homeless in Large Groups. It was stressed that even though local councils may find themselves receiving crowds and crowds of homeless refugees, they should avoid allowing them to congregate in large groups, and three reasons were given. Number one, the longer groups of people are held together, the greater is the danger of epidemics. Number two, the control of groups and the maintenance of law and order would become more difficult as their size increased and the longer they remained together. And number three, the morale of the homeless would suffer the longer they were held in groups. So there is a fear that allowing people to gather in groups or gangs after nuclear war will spread disease, yes, but will also spread disquiet, despair, anger. They'd be difficult to control. And that's a major fear of the government after nuclear war. Or, of course, at any time, but specifically after nuclear war, the fear of losing control of law and order. If you like the topic of law and order after nuclear war, see my previous episodes, which are called Forced Labour and also Get Out of Jail Free. Now we come to nuclear winter. Arguably the cold and the murk and the greyness and the death of all the plants, crops and animals that we see in the novel and the subsequent starvation that it causes is the result of nuclear winter. But what is that exactly? Well, it's only a theory. It has never happened and we'd need a nuclear war to test the theory. But in the 1980s, scientists gave us a new nuclear horror to keep us awake at night. They said that if death from heat and blast and fallouts and the collapse of civilization wasn't scary enough, we could learn to fear yet another effect of nuclear war, and that was a nuclear winter. In a nutshell, it's a catastrophic climate change. The theory goes that a nuclear war will heft so much smoke and soot up into the atmosphere that it will largely block out the sun. This means, of course, that temperatures will drop, but it also means that crops will die. And if crops die, animals and humans starve, and they die too. To me, the book does seem to be describing a nuclear winter when it talks of the cold, dead, grey landscape, which McCarthy describes as 
like the onset of some cold glaucoma dimming away the world. The trees are dead, the reeds are dead by the grey, sludgy river. If you touch any plants or weeds, they crumble to dust. And another quote here, On the hillsides, old crops dead and flattened, the barren ridgeline trees raw and black in the rain. And he tells us that the air is tainted with ash and soot. Quote, the grainy air, the taste of it never left your mouth. Of course, for the sake of argument, you could say that this has been caused by a massive volcanic eruption or meteor strike. Consider what happened in 1816, which became known as the year without a summer. A volcanic eruption in what is now Indonesia caused temperatures to drop all over the world and provoked crop failures and major food shortages. And if we're talking of the immense power of volcanoes, let's look of course at Krakatoa, whose explosion was said to have been the loudest noise heard in historic times. Wikipedia tells us that anyone within 10 miles of the explosion would have gone deaf from the sound. And we've talked before, I'm sure, of Zarbomba, the world's biggest nuclear explosion. Well, Krakatoa is estimated to have been four times as powerful. So yes, a massive volcano could cause something similar to a nuclear winter. And we all know what a meteor strike could do. We've all heard of the dinosaurs. But the destruction in the road seems to be targeted on cities. Often the countryside is depicted as empty and grey and dead, whereas cities are often blackened and burned. So that suggests targeted attacks. That suggests a war. But again, let's not get bogged down in debates about what caused the destruction here. It's a novel. For all we know, it could have been caused by aliens with ray guns. We're looking at what the destruction does to society and whether there are any similarities there with what we thought would happen or what we think will happen after nuclear war. Let's look again at nuclear winter and another feature linked to that horrible theory which appears in the road, and that's firestorms. Of course, a nuclear war wouldn't just provoke ordinary fires, the type that can be doused by the fire brigade. It would create a uniquely horrible type of conflagration known as a firestorm, which is a blaze so massive and so intense that it creates its own hurricane-force winds. Without getting lost in the science of it, the fire is so intense that it sucks in air. Of course, you don't need a nuclear war to have firestorms. They've occurred in intense wildfires, and of course they happened in the Second World War. In, for example, Dresden and Hamburg, and of course in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We see the effects of firestorms in the novel, in the road, And it's easy to believe that the author perhaps researched the dreadful fires of Hamburg and Dresden because he speaks of the surface of roads having bubbled and melted in the heat and then cooled and hardened again. And when our characters walk down the warped, cold road, they pass 
frozen bodies who've died in the fire and became trapped in the hot, sticky, bubbling tarmac. And they're now locked there, frozen in their positions of agony, their mouths howling, and they'll stay locked there forever, like the bodies at Pompeii. Here's a horrible description of the Hamburg firestorms from a survivor called Kate Toffmeister. She said, I struggled to run against the wind, but could only reach a house on the corner of the Sorbenstrasse. We couldn't go on across Eifenstrasse because the asphalt road had melted. There were people on the roadway, some already dead, some still lying alive but stuck in the asphalt. They must have rushed onto the roadway without thinking. Their feet had got stuck and they had put out their hands to try and get out again. They were on their hands and knees screaming. Oh, this has been a very glum episode, hasn't it? Normally we find something light-hearted or eccentric or strange to poke fun at or marvel about, but this one has just been misery. But then, it's a podcast about nuclear war. That's what you've come for, isn't it? (laughs) Maybe next week I'll try and lighten up. Maybe nuclear pop music of the 1980s. I've been toying with that for a while as a topic for an episode. I did put a call out on Twitter a few weeks ago for people to suggest... 1980s nuclear-themed pop, apart from the obvious ones, of course, like um, Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. That's the most important one, the most prominent one, I think. Uh, 99 Red Balloons, everyone knows that one. Enola Gay. So I asked people to suggest more offbeat ones that I might not have heard of. Um, Someone suggested Man at CNA by The Specials, and yes, I'd never heard of that one. So I think we'll do that next week, pop music, nuclear pop music of the 80s. So if there are any nuclear tunes from that decade that you want me to consider or talk about, then do tweet me. You can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell. Remember, if you like the podcast, please consider supporting it with a donation each month via my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. Let me say thank you and welcome to my most recent patron, Louie who signed up today. Let me also say thank you to the following patrons. Sally Everett Brick, Tom Allen, Paul Jonathan Viner, Everybody, Hack Green, Secret Nuclear Bunker, Dan Breen, Gary Watson, Arika, Lucy Stegervald, Ben Taylor, Jonathan Abelins, Simon Robinson, Heather Parker, Peter Mars, John Haynes, Tom Stickland, Yannick, Sam Marco, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damien Ryan, Peter Lee, Emma Nystrom, Ben Grabham, Ed Freshwater, Rosie Jameson, Andrew Key, Ian Elkin, Lorraine Glewick, Eamon Coyle, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Tara Moore, Simon Reid, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Woolnuff, Kevin Butter, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan and Gordy McNair. So that's us finished for this week and I'm actually quite glad to finish because as I say it's been a very tough episode. I do love this novel um, but I've only read it maybe three times in my life because like Threads it is so horrific, it is so powerful and it's so draining 
Uh, I do recommend it to you, of course, but I know it's not everyone's cup of tea. I just thought it's time to look at a nuclear novel, or what I perceive to be a nuclear novel, given that we've looked at so many nuclear films, and next week we're going to look at nuclear music. So I couldn't really leave out my favourite art form, which is the novel. It was time to include one of them. But there are plenty of others. We'll discuss them later. Um, If you want a tip on which one I recommend, my second favourite after the road is actually a young adult novel or a juvenile fiction, whatever you would call it, whatever the term is these days. Despite it being put into that category, it is still strong and powerful and I recommend it. It's called Brother in the Land. Brother in the Land by Robert Swindles. And yes, according to Amazon, it's classed as teenage fiction. But um, that doesn't mean that it's softer or weaker or, or it goes easy on nuclear war. I was pleasantly surprised at how powerful it is. So in future, we will uh, have a look at the brother in the land. So that's something I would recommend that you read if you want to explore some more nuclear fiction. So we're finished for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm sorry if this one has been very grim and glum. But we can't really avoid that when we're talking about nuclear war. (laughs) But thank you for listening. I'll be back next Sunday with another.